Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, great to have you here with us for what is sure to be a great and exciting episode. Katrina has assured me that it is. I know almost nothing about it. Yeah, this is going to be such a cool episode because it's definitely a story that you have not heard. And this is going to be our second installment of our Snow White project. So I will say our first episode of this project was the Trojan War and the Apple of Discord. At this point, it isn't imperative that you have listened to that episode to still understand what is happening in this episode. So no reason to stop what you're doing and go back and listen to that. But as the year goes on, you will definitely want to have listened to the Trojan War episode. So don't forget about it, but you don't need it for this episode. I am excited to see how it ties back in because there were a few obvious kind of Snow White tie-ins with like the apple being one of them. Yeah. But in the middle of the episode and listening to the episode, continually forgot that it was part of the Snow White series. And I was like, why are we talking about the Trojan War? Like, I like it. I'm here for it. So another thing that somebody pointed out to me, too, about the Trojan War episode was the idea of gifts that are tricks or traps. Gifts that are not gifts. Yeah. Which I was like, you know what? I didn't really see... The Trojan horse, like, quite that way. But when it was pointed Mm. out to me, because, like, it it wasn't necessarily left as a gift for the people. Yeah. You know, but they they took it in as a gift. Uh, Not as a gift. Mm -hmm. They took it in anyway. But I did think that was interesting, you know, that somebody pointed out how it it does kind of start this idea of like gifts that are actually tricks and plots mm-hmm. which i thought was interesting but yeah, yeah the trojan war it was like mostly important to know like the apple of discord stuff and a couple other like thematic things that'll all roll into this ball that is snow white yeah and divorced from the snow whiteness of it all was a really fun and cool like story and cool episode there's a lot going on there yeah exactly something for everyone to enjoy yeah that like even if you're just listening to that episode not for the snow white project if you're just listening to that episode it's still an amazing story quite an epic tale if i (laughs) In my humble opinion, it's a pretty good story. Somebody should make movies about it. If Homer does say so himself. Yeah. But before we get too far into this episode, uh, we just have a couple announcements. We mentioned this in our last episode, but we were on the podcast Not My Fantasy, and we talked about the 1940s French film La Belle La Bette. And that episode came out last week, so it's now available. Because when we announced it, they hadn't yet put it out. We just knew it was coming in February. So now it is out, so you can go and listen to our episode and listen to other episodes that they've done. It was super fun. We got to talk about a film. We hardly ever get to talk about films on our podcast, Mm -hmm. and so it was really fun to do that with Cullen and Hannah. Absolutely. So go listen to our episode and then probably listen to the Lord of the Rings series that they did because that one uh, was really fun and really funny and my favorite. And they also have a video element of their podcast. You can watch the video version on YouTube. That is not out yet. So this will give us an excuse to announce it. 
<laughs> on our next episode when the YouTube video is out so we could say, hey, now you can go see our faces on the Not My Fantasy podcast. Yeah, for people who are interested in our faces. Our faces made for podcasting. Yes. So also, March has a fifth Friday in it, and so I think we all know what that means. We will be having... Fifth. Sorry. No, say it. You, you, you sounded you so... You did the lead-in. No, you sounded so excited. I'm going to do it. Okay. But you, I need you to say... Okay. And we can say it together. Also, March has a fifth Friday in it, and so we all know what that means. Fifth Friday, Friday Fable Fest. We have a ton of fun doing the lives and having participation with our audience on our Instagram. We have not picked a topic yet, but once again, it is going to be picked by our Patreon patrons. We really appreciate our patrons that keep our podcast going. Literally, we pay our hosting fees to keep these episodes up and available with what we make from our Patreon. So thank you to our patrons. Thank you. Y'all are incredible. Before we fully get into the episode today, I want to go on a little side quest related to Snow White. Love a side quest. Yes, indeed. I recently had someone say in front of me in a venue where I could not stop them from being wrong. Did you know that the original Snow White was actually based on a true story? I died a little bit inside. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I probably don't have to tell anyone that listens to our podcast this whole spiel, but no to that entire statement just now. So when they said original, they meant the Brothers Grimm. In fact, I see this a lot where people say, oh, did you know that the original Snow White story from the Brothers Grimm, blah, 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 blah. And technically, the name Snow White is the name that's in the Brothers Grimm version and not necessarily any of the other ones. Mm, But we know that tale types are not necessarily names. You know what I mean? Because, for instance, I could write a story called The Little Girl in the Woods and it's Snow White, but then I just say, like, oh, but this is the original story the little girl in the woods because it's the first time i've given it that title does that make sense yeah so when there's when people are saying original that they mean the brothers grim and i know that again anyone who listens to this podcast for any period of time knows that, that there are no original folk tales original literary fairy tales yes folk tales no so the brothers grim are not the final say in any sense of the word on what is original they aren't the first and they aren't the last to use this tale type because any teller of these tales is welcome to put whatever spin on the tales that they want. So back to the claim that Snow White was based on a true story. Even taking the statement that is not true at face value. Yes. That the second part of the statement that it's based on a true story is also not true. Yes. So... As different scholars have come at fairy tales and folk tales with different types of approaches through the decades and almost like century of studying, there's been a wide range of analysis on these tales and lots of other tales. This is really getting into the weeds of fairy tale study, but I I promise we're we're not going on a very long trip into these weeds. And what is this podcast for <laughs> if not getting into the weeds on all things? Folktale and fairy tale. Indeed. So one of the approaches 
that is used to look at fairy tales has been the Freudian or Jungian psychoanalysis approach. So you might hear someone say, did you know that the story of Snow White is actually a story about how children have a psychological need to imagine their parents as villains so that they can pull away from their parents to grow into more independent teenagers? This story was vital for children in the 1800s to be able to become independent and develop through a normal development. If children aren't able to pull away from their parents, they will be psychologically repressed and remain adults dependent on their parents for validation. Maybe that's what my parents <laughs> So that's, that's not how childhood development works. Oh, good. But, <laughs> but when that approach to psychology was popular and there's still people still do look at the psychological relationship that we have with folktales. But when that was when that was an approach in psychology that was popular, that way of looking at fairy tales was also popular. And again, it is still used today in different ways than that. And so you have to be aware of the approach, not to mention the body of evidence and resources that they have gained by even looking at fairy tales that way is beneficial. So I'm not saying like, oh, every book that's ever been written, that's that is garbage and throw it out. So another approach that was popular at one time was a historical approach. So trying to find real world or real local events that were the seed that these tales sprouted from. This is also where you get people saying that localized outbreaks of plague or other diseases caused vampire legends, when in reality, it was like a chicken and the egg situation. People already believed in undead creatures. Plague outbreaks would cause a resurgence of panic, lore reciting, and remedies and rituals. Then that would inform the next time there was another such disease outbreak. But you can't trace all vampire lore back to a single plague outbreak or a single person, because that's also a popular thing to do is trace it back to one single person in time. So if people can remember back to when we did our episode on Hansel and Gretel, we actually talked a little bit about this. There was a big push that started around the 1960s to view these folk tales as partly historical and to try and find the biographical and historical origin of these tales. And what was funny was in the Hansel and Gretel episode, we talked about there was an author who was kind of tongue in cheek, making fun of this approach and accidentally created like a hoax. Because he thought he was making it very obvious that he was joking that Hansel and Gretel was like based on a true story. But people took that and were like, oh, he's serious. And there there is another person that did that in the 1990s with Snow White. But I'll get to that in a second. That was really fun. That whole like little accidental hoax situation. Yeah. That episode. As soon as you start talking, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was so funny. Yeah. A very, very similar thing has happened with Snow White that's really interesting, but another, a different thing as well. So you can definitely find articles and research that do say things like Snow White might have been based on a true story. If you Google it right now, Snow White based on a true story, articles like internet articles, like will pop up of different like listicles and stuff. You'll definitely be able to find them. But there's also sources for that. And so 
that research was done. They were looking at it from a historical approach that was relevant at the time that they were doing that. Scholars today do not try to go down that route as much anymore. And I'm not saying that the historical approach used like this is always 100% false. And I'm not saying that this period of time didn't generate very interesting and relevant data points for folklorists to consider. We, on the Fairy Tales podcast, have talked about stories like with our geomythology episodes about real historical happenings that might have given rise to myths and legends. So again, like we're not saying that stories are completely separate from the landscape that they are uh, formed in. That sounded more literal, but I meant it both figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) So these stories can be shaped by real events and how people perceive what happened is shaped by the stories that they already have. There's definitely an interplay between these things. And so all of the research done in the past, even using approaches that are viewed more critically now, still give us insight into these stories. Absolutely, there is still valuable information. I'm not discounting completely everything. So around the 1980s and the 90s, there were a couple scholars that speculated that a 16th century countess Margaretha von Waldeck could be a real person that the Snow White story was based off of. And a couple years later, a different person did write a tongue-in-cheek story about an 18th century baroness, Maria Sophia von Erthal, that the story was possibly about. That person was... By their own accounts, they were being tongue-in-cheek. They were joking. But that Mm -hmm. did not stop the towns for both of these women. (laughs) The towns that both of these women came from have used those things that were written by scholars for their tourism campaigns. Mm. And they'll say, oh, come and visit the gravesite of the real Snow White, or this is a Snow White town or whatever. And you know what? More power to them. Let them, <laughs> let them do it. I absolutely approve of towns using any claim to fame that they can to get tourists. We're looking at you, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Home of the Mothman. So the, I'll talk really briefly about the, the one that wasn't like a tongue-in-cheek because the one that was the Baroness or whatever from like the 1800s, she obviously wouldn't have been the catalyst for this story being written uh, Mm -hmm. because she appears too late on the scene. The story and the tale type predate her, especially some of like the elements that are inside of the story that we know from the Grimm's collection. Cause people like in the story, they were like, Oh, well, the glass coffin was glass because this town had a really big glass industry and all this stuff. It was uh, silly and funny. But the other one that is the the 16th century countess, the person who was writing about that, they were more serious. Uh, so I do want to talk about that one. So... This woman was a countess and she was the daughter of, um, I'm assuming a count, 
She was the daughter of a count. Her mother had died. Her father remarried. So she had a stepmother, right? So she was sent to go and live with her mother's brother. So maternal uncle while she was courting some of, you know, the other aristocracy and whatever. So she wasn't even close to her stepmother, right? And when she was 21, she ended up dying. There was a rumor that circulated at the time that she had been poisoned. Mm. And that's why she died. But again, her she was... She was nowhere close to that stepmother. In fact, her stepmother had died uh, two years previously. So <laughs> so it would have been really difficult for her to poison her stepdaughter. From yeah. On the grave. That would be a better story, to be honest. <laughs> yes. A ghost poisoning. But to, to add to kind of like the elements that they say are related, apparently this countess, her father owned a copper mine and at the time it was apparently common for children of the lower classes to work in the Mm. mines because they were small enough and so the person doing this research said that well you know obviously the legendary seven dwarves were inspired by these child laborers in the mine even though at no point did this countess go to live in the woods in hiding with minor miners, minor miners. <laughs> <laughs> and so if there, if this person did inspire any tales, which I'm very doubtful that they did, it's like so vague. It's like saying that like with Hansel and Gretel, but like, Oh, I found this old cabin that has burnt down in the woods and inside the ashes i found traces of gingerbread in the oven this must be and there were bones outside this must be where the witch in hansel and gretel lived Mm, yeah and it's like okay there are old houses that have fallen down and people cooked in the stoves Like, with a broad enough brush, anything can fit into the mold. Yeah. That was a weird metaphor. Very mixed. Broad brushes fitting in molds. (laughs) It works. So anyway, now that I have gotten that out of my system, I know that hopefully none of you will be going out and saying to anyone in the future, did you know that Snow White is based on a true story? If you say that three times in the mirror with the lights turned off, Katrina will pop out and strangle you to death. Because it's like, uh, what what was difficult was that it was a situation where... I couldn't just like interrupt the person and correct Mm -hmm. them without being extremely rude. And I don't, nobody who was there and in hearing distance of this person would have believed that I, you know, have any more grasp on that subject than anybody else. Yeah. Because it, it's not like, you know, if somebody's like, I'm a doctor. Yeah. You know, like, who am I? I'm like, what am I going to say? I actually have a podcast where I talk <laughs> about this. And so, yeah, I was like, there. it was like nothing I could do to like stop this person from like passing on this like misinformation. And they were so excited to share this information. So... <laughs> It just was what it was. You had to bite your tongue until it bled and let the entire room believe a lie. Yeah. But I am excited to be 
focusing on this project so that I can tell you more compelling ideas of how these stories formed and where they came from and how they changed from place to place. Because finding like the one true origin of a story is like impossible. Because mm-hmm. like we're seeing with this project, it's bits and pieces of stories from kind of all over. Coming together in different locations, forming in different ways simultaneously. And so then it's like, oh, what's the true story? There is no like true one pure Snow White story. Because at the same time that the Brothers Grimm were collecting one version of the story, they knew that they had other versions of the story that they were actively excluding because they were just picking out kind of the best one that showcased that tale type. Meanwhile, in Italy, there was a... Another one in France, there was another one in Persia, there was another one all happening at the same time. So there's not one story to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. I'm just really excited about Lord of the Rings. I love that we've been joking that for the Snow White series, we started with the Trojan War, like way back in Greek mythology. And there is actually another short Greek story from Ovid's Metamorphoses that we will probably talk about at some point in our journey, but It has a major trigger warning associated with it. It's kind of short and neither here nor there for today. Mm -hmm. So we will save it for another day. Today, we are going to be moving to a medieval tale because I'm trying to set us up to talk about gold tree and silver tree in March. And that is, it's a very obvious Snow White tale type, Mm -hmm. but with kind of an alarming twist to the point where at first, When I retell that story, I'll remind us of this. There were people who thought, I don't think that this story could be from Europe because of some of the elements that it has in it. Hmm. And this story disproves that. And we'll talk more about Ah. that when we do Gold Tree and Silver Tree in March. So we are going to be looking at a lay, which is a type of poem, narrative poem, From Marie de France, we're going to the 12th century. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Quick, to our time machine. (laughs) I deeply appreciate the sound effects. The time machine's kind of on the fritz. Got to get that sound checked out. It's not supposed to make that noise. So, Marie de France is a fascinating woman. And I'm getting some of my information today from a book called Of Six Medieval Women, written in 1913 by Alice Kemp Welch. This book has six chapters on six different medieval women, as you might expect from the title. (laughs) (laughs) Of Six Medieval Women. Could have put that together. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm only going to be using the second chapter on Marie de France. All right. So everything that we know about Marie de France is scant references to her work. Her name was Marie. She was from France. (laughs) She's referred to as Marie. So I will be referring to her and most people refer to her as Marie when they're talking about her because de France is not her family name. So if it sounds like I'm being disrespectful by calling her Marie, just know that it's because we're best friends. And we're on a first name basis with each well, other. Katrina also doesn't believe that she's like on 
great terms with this person who's been dead for hundreds of years. Well, I guess <laughs> that's what I was going to say, but apparently that would be false. Katrina does believe that. I do. So tell me all about your best BFF, Marie. So what we know about Marie was that she was from Normandy and she was alive in the middle of the 12th century. And she moved at some point to England, which at the time was something that wealthier families were able to do. Hmm. She was a literate woman, which is quite impressive. And she was proficient at translating old English texts. Because again, we're talking about uh, the 12th century. So at the time, mm -hmm. it was, people were translating things from old English into different languages. <laughs> <laughs> new and improved English. New and improved English. No, she was like translating it into, I believe, what is considered now to be old French. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, everything was old back then. Yeah. <laughs> In her head, she would have just been like, I'm translating this from English to English French. English to French. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she wouldn't have called it old English. So she could also translate Latin. Nice. Yes. So she definitely came from some kind of money. Yeah. Smart, educated lady. And she was probably living in the courts of the king at the time or near the courts. She might have been a nun. I've read in different places that she could mm -hmm. have, you know, gone into a monastery and been writing all of this stuff. Interesting. Yeah. So she did a couple different translations for other people, including a version of Aesop's Fables. You might remember from our other episodes that the printing press hadn't been invented yet. And so when she was doing her translations and writings of Aesop's Fables, she was handwriting them. Oh, man, what a pain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, she, like, it was taking her a hot minute to do that. And so these were being handwritten for other nobility to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Not to be, like, sold on the street, you know, for right. money. That's not what she was doing. She wasn't doing, like, FBA on Amazon with her hand-translated and hand-scribed books. Yeah, no. It's like none of this, none of this was being, like, mass-produced. But after doing a couple different translations of other major works, what makes Marie so important and notable, especially for what we talk about on the podcast, is she decided that so many other stories had been written and rewritten. She wanted to record something that hadn't been written down before. She wanted to write down Celtic folk stories. Ooh. Specifically, she wrote her own poems or lays as she was recording these stories. So the poetry and words might be her own, but she doesn't claim that the stories are hers. Right. Interesting that she chose to write it down as like a poem. She was That's cool. Yeah, because I'm like, what's fascinating? I believe I read somewhere that they're like, oh, her craft in poetry wasn't very very refined like it's not like uh -huh. the best we have but it's <laughs> but for listen for her time period and like what uh -huh. she was doing incredible you know so if people are right. like you know it's no sir gowan and the green knight or whatever uh -huh. like okay yeah <laughs> what she was trying to take these like stories that already existed that people already told and turn them into a poetry and yeah so I'm like, if people want to be dissing her. Yeah. It's funny. I just imagine like someone doing some like really important like 
you know, folkloric research nowadays, but like writing it in just like limerick form. (laughs) (laughs) There once was a a Marie of France. She didn't wear pants because she was a woman. So she wore a skirt and she wrote these bad poems, but did very important folklore uh, research. And we appreciate it very much. That wasn't even a limerick because I couldn't make it happen in the end, but just cut the the, the attempt at a limerick. So in her volume of Lay's, The overarching theme is love, love for the sake of love, courtly love Mm. as well, but especially this idea of the difference between love out of duty and obligation and love that comes from an attraction to another person's body and soul. Wow. Yeah. So in some of her lays, she makes reference to King Arthur tales and in later versions of King Arthur tales, references are made to her work. So when it comes to courtly love, this story is right in the middle of all of that. And we will definitely see that theme coming up in the story that we're telling. So these poems were very famous during this time period among the court. Very, very famous. In 1245 AD, King Hakon IV had them translated into Norse so that they could read them in his court. Mm, Wow. So like this woman was very well known. Her poems were renowned. People wanted them. People referenced her. She was an important figure for her time. So it's like, it's fascinating how they say, I'm trying not to make it into like a feminist thing, but they say Uh that kind of probably what happened is as French fell out of vogue as the language of the court and English started to become the language of the court, that's when her influence and her stuff just kind of started to get less in. Right. Because she was like translating the English stuff into French. And that was like the cool thing to do then. And like, oh, let's translate from French to these other languages. And it's yeah. like, oh, French isn't cool anymore. We don't like French. And she didn't write in English or these other languages. Yeah, so. this this volume that she made, she had written into old French. And then this one copy that was translated into Norse so that it could, you know, go out. Uh-huh. Her like cool nickname of like Marie of France started off as being like, wow, look how cool she's from France. And then it was like, oh, look how lame she's from France. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Just just kidding, I don't know. So only five manuscripts of these poems exist today, and only one of them contains all 12 of the poems, and it also has a prologue that was written by Marie de France herself, reflecting on her work, which is super fascinating. Mm. So it's kind of like the greatest hits album with like the liner notes that the band wrote in retrospect like looking back on their illustrious career yes that's exactly what it is did she is it signed it'd be worth a lot of money if it were signed i doubt it (laughs) i doubt it very seriously i mean considering that she hand wrote the whole thing herself i mean yeah yeah i'm like just as good as being signed well because i'm like i don't know if she it might not have been yeah because i'm like she might have written one and then it got copied by other other people people, and then yeah I know very little about how things worked back then, but that is one thing that I know because they would like just have monks be like writing copies of this book and they would draw pictures of cats and like snails fighting to the death with knights because they were so bored by hand copying all these freaking books. Yeah. Marginalia, your favorite word. No, latrinalia is my favorite word. Oh, that's true. 
Marginalia, your favorite activity. Yes, Marginalia is one of my favorite activities. Our, our lawyers would like for her not to admit to being a vandal, so she can't say that the Trinalia is one of her favorite activities. That's true. I do take a lot of pictures of uh, inside of bathrooms. <laughs> Which our lawyers also would like you <laughs> to know. Uh, <laughs> are vacant when I'm taking the pictures. Except for me. Uh, I'm in there taking pictures, but not of myself. <laughs> Yeah, just keep talking, Katrina. It just sounds better and better the more you go. So I'm going to begin by reading a bit of the prologue. But first, I want to say the story that I'm going to be retelling is The Lay of Eliduc. You are definitely going to see elements that we are familiar with. It isn't until we get close to the end that you're going to realize why we're retelling this tale in relation to our Snow White series. Mm. But rest assured, we will get there. And it's a good story regardless. So we'll enjoy the ride as we get to the point. Yes, absolutely. I gotcha. I'm in. So I'm going to start by reading the prologue because Marie writes about why she's writing down these stories. And I think it's incredible that you get to hear like the voice of Marie herself explaining 800 years from when she wrote this down to now it gives me chills because i am a dork (laughs) i mean and technically she did write this in old french and i'm not gonna be reading it in old french but still it's very cool to those whom god has given the gift of comely speech should not hide their light beneath a bushel but should willingly show it abroad if a great truth is proclaimed in the ears of men it brings forth fruit a hundredfold but when the sweetness of the telling is praised of many flowers mingle with the fruit upon the branch it was the custom of ancient writers to express obscurely some portion of their books so that those who come after might study with greater diligence to find the thought within their words the philosophers know this well and were the most unwearied in labor the more subtle in distinction so that the truth might make them free They were persuaded that he who would keep himself unspotted from the world should search for knowledge that he might understand to set evil from me and to put away my grief. So this is some of the portion where it sounds a little bit like, was she a nun? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was thinking that because it's there's tons of like biblical references in there, but she's not talking about like like spiritual or religious topics, which I mean, that's not uncommon, but it is like. So chock full of this like religious, yeah, biblical wording to not be mentioning anything about religion. It's that it's like sounds pretty nunny to me, is all I have to say. Sounds pretty nunny. So she writes, To set evil from me and to put away my grief, I propose to commence a book. I considered within myself what fair story in the Latin or romance I could turn into the common tongue, but I found that all the stories had been written, and scarcely it seemed the worth my doing what so many had already done. I love that she's like, all the books that have already been written have been written. Like, so what What can I do? Then I called to mind those lays I had so often heard. I doubted nothing, for well I know, that our fathers fashioned them, that men should bear in remembrance the deeds of those who had gone before. Many ago, on many a day, the minstrel has chanted to my ear. I would not that they should perish forgotten by the roadside. In my turn, therefore, I have made of them a song, rhymed as well as I am able, and often has their shaping kept me sleepless in my bed. And then she 
ends the prologue basically speaking directly to the king who she was writing these for and being like, I hope that you enjoy like what I've written, which is like incredible that she's like, you know, just writing at the end, you know, to a king being like, dear king, hope you enjoy Yeah. in your honor, most noble and courteous king to whom joy is a handmaid and in whose heart all gracious things are rooted. I'm like, eh, don't talk to people. Don't talk to kings like that. They're not worth it. <laughs> so, here is, this is not a trigger warning, but I'm going to tell you that as a f- feminist, <laughs> the end of this story is not what you would expect for our hero in this story, but is very rooted in courtly love. And so keeping that in mind matters, but also mm. this story, it's so important to understand that this story happened before we like move forward. I hope everyone's afraid. So at the beginning of her poems, she always starts out by basically laying the whole situation out, but I am not going to do that because that's a spoiler alert in Mm. today's storytelling parlance. You don't just start off a story by being like, here's how it's all going to end. It's like the trailer before the trailer of movie trailers nowadays. Yeah. Where it's like, we show this mini trailer to get your attention, but now we're going to show the whole trailer. Yeah. And like the biggest moments of the whole long trailer have already been shown to you. So it's like, oh, thanks a lot for that yeah. mini trailer before the trailer. So we're skipping the mini trailer and just getting to the good stuff. Yeah. Because like in her defense, she knew that everybody who is reading the story already knows the story. Right. Because she was like, oh, so this is going to be a retelling of this story that you might know as this yeah. story because of how this all shakes out. And that. Right. And so it's like, okay, thank you. If I lived 800 years ago, maybe I would have appreciated that. Right. But it's spoiler alert. We don't need it in this context. We don't want it in this context. Yeah, absolutely not. So Ailey Duke was a knight for the King of Brittany. Hmm. This knight greatly loved and cherished. He was a great knight, really strong, smart, worked really well with everybody, and very, very loyal to his king. So Aileduc was also a mighty hunter, and it says, by the king's grace, he would chase the stag within the woods. He was cunning and fair as Tristan, which is a reference to another story, which we're not going to tell right now. Tristan and his old, I'm guessing. Yes. But because he was so wonderful, so cunning and fair and smart and battle and all this stuff, other men who worked with the king were envious of all of his accolades, and they kind of hatched this evil plan against him. So they went to the king and told him that Aileduc had been stealing from him, taking more than his allotted share of the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the king, because he liked Aileduc, but he was still upset by what was happening, he summoned Aileduc to court and basically told him, hey, I just want you out of here. You're done. We're not friends anymore. <laughs> and he wouldn't give Aileduc any reason for it. He wasn't going to kill him, but he also was like, hey, if you're stealing from me. He didn't tell him what had happened. He just was like, get out. So Aileduc being completely like caught off guard and deeply wounded that he would have worked so hard and been treated this way, he decided that he could not live in the kingdom anymore 
after being treated mm. like in this way, after being in the king's service for so long. Yeah. <laughs> it says it became his honor to depart. <laughs> so he told some of the other soldiers and knights that were under him what had happened to him and that, you know, he'd gotten kicked out. And he said that he was going to go to some of the kingdoms across the sea to see if there was a king over there that he could serve where he could kind of be out of the uh, way. Yeah. He's like, get, he's getting out of this old place. He's telling everyone like, Hey, this King sucks. Listen to what he did to me. Yeah. I'm looking for a new King that I can be cool with. That's not going to be a lame old jerk like this guy. was. Yeah. I mean, again, like this story is very much about like this whole era of romantic adventures and stuff for knights where they're like, yeah. Oh, this night I, I don't get to be in the King's service. Then I will find another knight or another King to fight for. And yeah, it's interesting. Cause that's kind of like, you know, like the whole thing about like Ronin, like in Japanese, like history was a real thing that happened. Yeah. Like if you weren't serving like one Lord, like you went and you found someone else to serve. Otherwise, like there's this whole name for it. And it's like somewhat shameful kind of a thing yeah. to like be a masterless samurai. You're like, I'm here to be fighting and doing cool stuff, but I can't do that if I'm not in service of somebody. So like, I got to go find somebody to serve if I want to keep doing my cool stuff. Yeah, that's like exactly what it was. But he had he had a plot of land. And so he placed that in the hands of his wife and, you know, was like, oh, take care of that. To some of the people who were <laughs> nearby, he uh -huh. was kind of like, oh, can you keep an eye on my wife and help her tend the land and stuff while I go off and do that? And they were kind of like, okay, sure. Hold up. He's like going off, but he's leaving his wife behind. Yeah, because he's going off to go look for a king to fight for, her, like go off to right. like a fight. And so he's not going to take his wife, especially he still has this plot of land. Yeah. And I guess it makes sense too. Like he doesn't know where he's going yet. It's yeah. Like maybe, and I don't know, maybe this isn't how it would work, but it's like once he found a king, he's like, okay, this is going to be our place. Like let's make this our new home. Then he like sends for her to come and join him. But it's like, well, he's out finding isn't necessary he's on like the pre-scout he's looking for the the houses they're going to move into in the new the new neighborhood and yeah like picking out the ones that he think that she'll like and narrowing that list down before he brings her along to make the big decision yeah so it's like while he still has land because i think he basically wanted to make sure you know let the king cool off whatever he got fired for like maybe let that die down see see what's going on so he was yeah. like i'm gonna leave my wife here with our land, no reason to give up on, you know, the land that we have. But he didn't want to be just like a farmer working his land. He was a knight. Right. So he took 10 knights from his household or, you know, his family group, his soldiers that were under him. And he set out on his journey, on his quest. And it says his wife came with him so far as she was able, wringing her hands and making much sorrow at the departure of her husband. At the end, he pledged good faith to her as she to him, and so she returned to her own home. So he walked until they got to the sea. He got on a boat with these 10 guys and sailed mm. off to this realm that had a lot of different kings that were living in that country. So there was lots of war and strife because there were a lot of different people who were trying to take over the land. Yeah. So, you know, it's just a lot of fighting, warring. Great for a knight who's just looking for somebody to fight for. So he hears about this one king, kind of older, who is in the middle of a really rough war because he has this daughter 
that he has up in a castle hidden away and men want to marry her. She's very fair and it says very strong. I don't know what they meant by strong, uh, what the context Mm. of that was. But they said she was very fair and strong or she was fair and very strong. And the king did not want to let any of the other kings in the area marry his daughter. He had already been like, oh, I've looked at all of you losers and I don't want any of you (laughs) to marry her. And so all the other kings were basically fighting with him because they all wanted this daughter. So Eliduc thought to himself, hey, you know what? This king sounds like a good one to serve. Maybe because he's the first one they came across. (laughs) Uh-huh. So he sat down, wrote some letters to the king to have them, you know, sent off with like a messenger to go say, hey, I have left my own country and we're seeking refuge in your realm. And if you let us stay here, we will fight for you in your honor. Mm-hmm. And so the king read those letters and he was kind of like, oh, that would be really great to have any extra men at all because things have been pretty rough. So he has Eliduc come and see him and Eliduc, you know, told him face to face what the plan was. And the king was like, oh, yeah, that all sounds wonderful. I have, you know, found this one place in the city where I can have you guys lodged for a while before any fighting happens. Eliduc was like, thank you so much. That would be great. They go to um, it says Eliduc fared softly both at bed and board. And so Eliduc had all of his knights that worked with him come to him and basically said, hey, while we're staying here, I want you guys all on your best behavior. We are not going to take anything from the people in this town until we've proven ourselves that we're here to help them. We don't want this to just be something where we're coming into the town, messing up their inn, drinking all their mead, eating all their food, and then getting kicked out. We like we need to make sure that we like prove ourselves. And so all of his knights were like, yeah, no, absolutely. That definitely sounds like something that we can do. On the third day that they were there, only the third day, there suddenly was like this commotion in the streets. And Eliduc asked somebody like, well, what's going on? The country people were like, one of the kings, his men are in the forest and they're coming at us. They're going to come and raid the town. We need to flee. We need to run and just like leave. And Ailey Duke mm-hmm. was like, no, 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 no. That is not what we're going to do. Give me all of your able-bodied men that you have. So all of the able-bodied men like came out and Ailey Duke was like, okay, tell me like what, how does this like normally go? And they're like, well, so they'll... They come into the town and they like raid everything, steal our stuff, burn everything or whatever. And then they run back down this like one path. And Ayla Duke was like, okay, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to go and hide along that path where they are at. And me and my soldiers, we're going to fight inside the city and we are going to like drive them back out of the city. And then you need to jump out on their way out and attack them. Do you understand? And the townspeople were like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. And he said this to the people, which I absolutely loved. He said, if we await them in the town, we defend ourselves with the shield and not with a sword. To my mind, it is better to fall in the field than to hide behind walls. So that is exactly what happened, that Eliduc set people out to ambush near the path 
He told over to them like a cunning captain the crafty plan he had devised and taught them how to play their parts. So when all of these people, you know, started coming down like the path heading towards the village, Eliduc and his knights and some of like the other men that he had gathered were already standing outside to defend the city or the gates of this like small town. And they immediately, you know, started fighting with them. And these people were kind of like, oh, we were not expecting this because they were not like expecting there to be this like active defense, like inside this town. So they quickly turned and started running, you know, back down the path. And all the people that were hiding out on the path jumped down on these people and attacked them and were able to, basically like annihilate all of them and take their weapons, their clothes, their like goods, uh, money that they had mm. on them, basically just like stripped them naked slash killed all of them. Uh-huh. So meanwhile, the king was up in his castle court area and he was watching from like high up from like a window, but he couldn't see like who was who that was going on. So he just was basically like watching again as this like group was coming to burn stuff and light stuff and whatever. And he saw all this fighting going on in the woods and he was like, oh no, oh, I just got that Aleduc guy to help us. And now it, it turned out to be nothing like, oh, well. And so the king came down so that he could kind of like go and assess the damage to see how bad it was and possibly even to tell the people who had attacked that like, okay, you win the city or whatever. Like he was just kind of at this like, oh man, (laughs) like, oh well. So as he was like walking out there, he was finding all of these people laughing and having great time. It says they were laden with their spoils of war. And he was like, wait, what is happening? I don't understand. And a squire like ran over to him and like told him all about what had happened and how like Eliduc had gotten everybody gathered up to like attack and stuff. And it said from that day, the king loved and cherished Eliduc very dearly because he was like this guy is definitely on our side like i put him up down in the town you know to just like hang out so he had like a place to seek refuge or whatever but Mm -hmm. he totally came in at the clutch like saved everybody like he's great i'm so glad he like proved himself it says Aliduk was not only a brave and wary captain he was also a courteous gentleman right goodly to behold (laughs) Oh, so hot stuff. Yeah. So everybody was talking like in the town about like this amazing guy that came into town. And he's like, he, oh, he's amazing this night. He's like so brave and so smart and he's handsome, so gallant, incredible. So he was being talked about so much like in the court that the king's daughter ended up hearing about him. Mm. And she was hearing about his deeds and she wanted to see him for herself because of all of the men who were speaking about him. Yeah. I'm sure it was his deeds that (laughs) she was interested in seeing. She's only interested in the articles. Uh, (laughs) So she sent her Chamberlain to the night to ask him if he wanted to come to her place and tell her the stories of his deeds. 
I'm like, right. <laughs> so Ayla Duke sent the Chamberlain to go and say that, like, he would love to meet with her. So Ayla Duke got himself ready, went over to her place, told the Chamberlain that he was here as requested. And the Chamberlain, it says, came forth with a smiling face and straightway led him to the princess's chamber. So when the princess saw the knight, it says she cherished him very sweetly and welcomed him in the most honorable fashion. So there is like so much sexual undercurrent that's going to be happening Uh. because this is like a courtly love story, Um, but not explicit like in the Sir Gowan and the Green Knight like uh, episode. Right. So Ayla Duke gazed on the woman. She was... Passing fair to see. Passing fair. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, ah, she, I. Uh, she was all right. <laughs> she's not a MILF, but she's not an ago. <laughs> so he thanked her for the invitation and for having him come and talk with her. The princess, who has a name, Gilardan, she took a Leduc by the hand and seated him upon the bed near her side. And it says they spake together of many things so they basically just like spent the night talking uh-huh. but no they they did just spend the night like <laughs> no really but no really they yeah. did it becomes obvious but that was it and like the kind of like the rest of and what follows next that it was like they just had a really good night of like talking to each other getting to know each other and she, you know, did think that he was like super handsome, really wonderful. And it says, love knocked upon her heart, requiring her to love. Oh, that's a pretty sweet line. Yeah. I, I think like sweet is in like, oh, that's so sweet, but also like sweet, like sick. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Yeah. So it says that like she sighed and she her face started to lose its color because she was feeling like faint because she was so swoony Uh from like how handsome he was but it says that she tried to like hide that from the night because she didn't want him to you know think that she was some swoony Mm. girl which there She's got some like major like middle school girl vibes going on. I'm not saying that that's the age that she is. There's just some stuff that goes on where I'm like middle school. We'll get there in a second. Anyway, so they spent the night just like talking with each other. And Ayla Duke was like, well, I need to go. I'm going to be leaving now. Goodbye. And the lady would have kept him longer gladly. But since she did not dare, she allowed him to depart. So Ayla Duke went back to the lodgings that he had and he was really deep in thought, thinking about the night that they had just had, like talking, getting to know each other Mm -hmm. because he was like, wow, she was really nice. Like she was just like so sweet and interesting. And she had like kissed him farewell when they left. And he said that like all of her little sighs just sounded so sweet to his ears. And it says he repented him right earnestly that he had lived so long a while in the land without seeking her face, but promised that often he would enter her palace again. So, yeah, he was like, oh, I feel so bad that I didn't go and see this woman earlier because he hadn't been thinking to himself, 
oh, this king is supposedly has a super hot daughter. I should fight for this guy. No, he was just like, uh-huh. oh, who yeah. needs a knight? Who might welcome us? Oh, this guy's in need of like, right. he, he's the most likely to let us in. Sure, I'll fight for this guy. I'll do the whole knightly thing. I'm not in it for anything except for like the adventure of being a knight. And now right. he's like, oh, no. Why didn't I go and see this woman? And then next, after that thought. We're like, because you're married, yes. sir. His like very next thought said, then he remembered the wife whom he had left in his own house. <laughs> he recalled the parting between them and the covenant he made. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. So then he says that good faith and stainless honor should be ever betwixt the twain. So again, this idea of honor keeps coming up in courtly love. The difference between Mm -hmm. marrying somebody because you're supposed to, because they're the right person to be married to based on circumstance, like family dynamics and Yeah. yeah, versus truly loving somebody. Yeah. Like, and the other, the, it was the norm to marry someone for the, you know, more like political or, you know, like those type of reasons than like love. Yeah. And again, the audience for these stories were the nobility, were people who did have to marry out of obligation and honor for their families Mm -hmm. to create alliances. And so these stories to them of this idea of another way of like, what if I was to marry for love? What would that be like? That was a topic that was on their minds and something that they like to explore through stories. And that's who like this on. That's who the audience of this was. And so, yeah, that idea of honor when he's like, oh, no, but I'm married. (laughs) But he was like, what am I even like thinking about? Because if she's going to marry anybody, it's probably her father's going to marry her off to like a king or something. So like it, Mm -hmm. I'm. It's neither here nor there. Like, there's no point in catching feelings, like, for this woman. What am I doing? But all night long, the fair maiden was, it said, she had neither rest nor sleep. And she got up, like, really early in the morning and went to her chamberlain. And it said, opened out to him all that was in her heart. Which I'm like, who is this guy? Oh, man. Because can I just tell you, in my mind... He is like the gay best friend. Do you know what I mean? Mm. When I'm picturing this Chamberlain, like in my mind, he is like the sassy gay best friend. Gotcha. What? Like, okay. So she goes and she like tells him everything and is like, buddy, I'm in love with this guy. I love him so much. I turned, I tossed and turned all night in my bed. I couldn't close my eyes. I couldn't sleep. I don't think I'll ever be able to sleep again until he assures me that he loves me too. And then she's like, I mean, if he married me, if like I was able to marry him, he would become a king of this realm. And so like, it would be really great for him if he married me. So like, even if he only married me for the personal gain, I could get him to marry me. (laughs) It's like, I'd be down. Like, as long as he's married to me, I don't care why he's doing it. Yeah, whether it's because he gets to be a king or like what. And then she says, but if he had nothing better than friendship to give me, I choose death before life. So deep is my distress. (laughs) Death before friendship. (laughs) So, yeah, she 
asked the Chamberlain, like, what do you think I should do? And the Chamberlain was like, so you love this night. You think he's the best. One thing that you could do is come up with some gift to give him, like a girdle. <laughs> we talked about this in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, like a girdle or like uh-huh. a scarf or a ring. Yeah. And I just want to say, let's start keeping track of items as we are going through uh, like the different stories, because a girdle slash scarf and a ring are items that Mm. we will encounter again. I'm just saying. So if you give him a good gift, like a girdle or a scarf or a ring, if he receives the gift with the light, then you know that he really likes you and he's honoring the gift and you can be assured that he loves you. And if he says no to the gift, then you know that he's like softly turning you down. Yeah. Giller done. So Giller done was like, okay, that's great advice. I will definitely do that. If only I knew that he desired my love. Did ever maiden woo her knight before by asking whether he loved or hated her? What if he make of me a mock and jest in the ears of his friends? <laughs> I like this is so relatable. Yeah, like 800 years later. Yeah. If the secrets of the heart were but written on the face, but to get you ready for go, you must at once. I'm like, <laughs> this lady, I'm like, girl, you're so dramatic. So relatable where she's just like, I'd like, yeah, that is major middle school vibes. We've all been there. So the Chamberlain was like, okay, I'm ready. Go get this stuff. And I will like go and do that. And then she says, you must greet the knight a hundred times in my name and place my girdle in his hand and this my golden ring. And the Chamberlain was like, okay, lady. I'm like, do you, he's probably thinking of his head. I am not going to greet the knight a hundred times in your name. That's okay. You're insane. It's like, this is, this is going to seem a little weird. Like he goes up to the knight. He's like, listen, this is going to seem a little weird, but just go with me on this. She asked me to greet you a hundred times. <laughs> so, hello. Hi. How are you? Hello. Greetings. Salutations. Hola. Uh, bonjour. Bonjourno. 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 Howdy. <laughs> oh, man. We've only got through 10 and... I'm already done with it. So yeah, you're right. He probably did not do that. No, it's entirely too many times. So yeah, once the Chamberlain had left, she immediately was like, oh, I'm so sick in my heart. Because like, what if he, what if he doesn't like me back? What if he does? Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And then she immediately was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I hardly know this guy. I've given my heart to like a stranger. I know nothing of his people. I don't know, you know, whether, I don't know. I've never met his family. I don't know. His, like, yeah, he has a wife. <laughs> Not only have I given him my heart, I've given him my girdle. Yeah. Ooh. And she was like, oh, this is so foolish. Why have I been so dumb? Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's going to make fun of me so much. So she's just like spiraling out in her room waiting for yeah. like the Chamberlain to come back, which listen, I love that. It, also related. I love that a woman wrote this and uh, I love <laughs> that she was like also reading this to like other women who were like nobility at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, because it is like, wow. So relatable. So they're like, mm-hmm, yeah. While this lady was in her room freaking out, the Chamberlain quickly went to the lodging of Eladuck 
Ayla Duck. A- yeah. Ayla Duck or Ayla Duke? Ayla Duck. I think I think what we I can't remember if we said Duck or Duke. I think it's Duck. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. The Chamberlain quickly went to the lodgings of Ayla Duck and it said having saluted him in his lady's name not a hundred times. It doesn't say that, but <laughs> but I mean, let's be real. Um, They're like he he saluted her in her name. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. He then presented Ayla Duck with the ring and the girdle. The knight thanked him earnestly for the gifts, and he immediately placed the ring upon his finger and the girdle he wrapped around his body. But he didn't say anything else to the Chamberlain. He was just like, "Yep, thank you." And the Chamberlain was like, oh, wait, okay. This was the secret unspecified third option that we did not foresee. (laughs) The fact that this guy was just like, okay, thank you. Bye. (laughs) So the Chamberlain went back and found the princess spiraling out. And he was like, oh, the knight said, thank you for the gifts. And she said, the translation says, diva, diva, hide nothing from me. I don't know why she was calling the Chamberlain a diva when, listen, we know who the real diva is. I'm just saying. Uh Um, So I don't know what the translation for that old French is or whatever, but I do think it's funny just because in my mind I have this headcanon. Anyway, it's fine. So the princess was like, hide nothing from me. Does he love me or does he not? And the Chamberlain was like, I think he loves you. I do. (laughs) He said, Ava Duck, he's not that great with like his words. I think he's just a really discreet gentleman. And so he's just like hiding what's in his heart. That's why he was quiet. That was my read on him. And I'm like, yeah, no, he is being very discreet about how already married he is. (laughs) So he's like, I gave him the greetings in your name. He doesn't say a hundred times. That's where he messed up. Just kidding. The Chamberlain is faultless in all of this. I love him. So he was like, I gave him the gifts in your name and he did, he put the ring on his finger and he took your girdle and he wrapped it around him and belted it tightly about his middle. I didn't say anything else to him. He didn't say anything else to me, but I felt like he received your gifts with tenderness. So I, and then he says, lady, I've told you his words. I cannot tell you his thoughts, which... (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yes, perfect. Just because, yeah, he's just like, listen, I did what you told me to do. He didn't say anything. I don't know. And the lady, she was like, are you joking with me? She literally says, it pleases you to jest. (laughs) So she's like, you're messing with me. She was like, I realize that Ayla Duck doesn't like hate me. Like, obviously, I wasn't asking, like, does he love me or does he hate me? Like, it's does he like me or does he like like me? (laughs) Which I'm like, (laughs) this is is so middle school. So I love that whole conversation because she's so relatable when it comes to crushing on someone. But she fell victim to a mistake that I think we've all made at least once in middle school. And that is sending (laughs) someone else To go and tell someone something and then you're like, what did he say? What did his face look like? Did he say thank you? Like, oh my gosh, I love this. Or thank you, like, ew. Yeah, and and the person you send is never as invested in the situation as you are. Like, they don't want to be doing it. So, like, you're like, okay, this is really important. Greet him a a hundred (laughs) times and then give him these things. And it's like, ugh, okay, they get there and they're like, they greet him once and then they give him the things, but they don't, like... 
do it in the way that's like, you know, if I had done, if you had done it the way that I said, then you would have, he would have gotten a response. But because you didn't greet him a hundred times, he didn't respond the way that he should have in the situation. This was carefully crafted. How did I ever trust you with this important mission? Because I was too nervous and afraid to do it myself. Yeah. Like, lady, I get it. That's totally me too. But it's just. Yeah. It's like, ma'am, I know that you don't have middle school 800 years ago, but this is a classic middle school mistake. Yeah. So yeah, you definitely should have done it yourself. So she was like, oh man, like, I don't even know. He just came here like a week ago, literally like a week ago. (laughs) And so he came and did this amazing thing. And then I met him. We had an amazing night talking and getting to know each other. I felt like we really connected, but he could be gone In like next week, he could just like go on to like the next thing. I don't even know. So like, why am I getting so worked up like about this man? I'm being stupid. I'm spiraling out. I should not have like invested so hard in him. And then the Chamberlain Mm. was like, oh, no, the night actually he like promised your dad that he would stay to help your dad for at least like the next year. So, I mean, really, it says you have full leisure to tell whatever you desire him to learn. If you want to tell him your feelings, you have the time. He's not going to disappear tonight. And so when she heard that Ayla Duck was, the name sounds so messed up to me, that when Ayla Duck was going to stay in the country, she was like, oh, yes. So immediately it was like, she's like, that's it. I'm, you know what? I shouldn't even have caught feelings. I shouldn't. And then she, he's like, oh, he's actually going to be here for the next year. And she was like, I love him. <laughs> Meanwhile, he is back at his place being like, oh, she like sent me these gifts. I think that she likes me. I think that's why she like brought the stuff or maybe she was just being nice. I don't know. And then he's like, ah, I shouldn't even be thinking these things. He called to remembrance the covenant he made with his wife. (laughs) He keeps being like, oh, he never wanted to be false to his oath, but his heart was a captive now in a very strong prison. Like, he desired greatly to be loyal and honest, but he could not deny his love for the maiden. Gilladun, so frank and so fair. The fairest of them all, you might say. I'm joking. Ayla Duck is freaking out about his honor and whatnot and whatever. So he decided from then on that he was going to try to just like, you know, he wasn't going to refuse the princess like a a greeting, like a kiss and an embrace, but he wasn't going to talk of love. He didn't want to offend her and everything. So he kind of threw himself into his work, working for the king, you know, working as a knight, going out, attacking other people and getting like the kingdom sorted out. And so he was doing that and, you know, really successful, doing a great job. And the king was so happy with like all the work that he was doing that he was like, I want to invite this guy to my house. So he invited the knight to come to his house and when Ayla Duck got there, it said the king was at chess. He was like playing a game of chess uh, with a lord who had but come from overseas. <laughs> and so Ayla Duck, like, Ayla Duck like went over and, you know, greeted him and was just talking with the king. And the king was like, oh, yeah, I just wanted you to come over because I really enjoy you. And then the princess like happened to be next to him. And so the king turned to the princess and was like, princess, it 
It becomes you to have a closer friendship with this Lord and to treat him well and worshipfully. Amongst 500, there's no better knight than he. And immediately she was kind of like, oh my gosh, maybe things could happen. Maybe my dad would be cool with me marrying him. Maybe like that could be something that could happen. I don't know. Mm. And... She was like, oh, yeah, sure, dad, I'll keep him company. So while the king kept playing chess with this other guy, she took Ayla Duck and they like went over to have like a conversation with each other. So it said she did not dare to speak the first. To him, the maid was more dreadful than a knight in mail. <laughs> so both of them are sitting there like being like, oh, gosh, I don't want to talk first. I feel, oh, I don't know. Mm, I'm so uncomfortable. And so... Aladuck broke the silence by finally thanking her himself for the gifts that she had given. And it was like, that was so nice of you to give me the ring and the girdle. And so she said that she, you know, had was so happy that he liked them and he was wearing them and that it made her feel great. And then she decided like all cards on the table, like she was going for it. She was like... I love you so fondly that I wish that you were my husband. And if I don't have my wish, one thing that I know so well is that I will take no other man and I will die unwed. And said she trusted he would not deny her hope. I'm like, ma'am, that was embarrassing. (laughs) 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 Wow, that was a lot. So he was like, I have great joy in your love, and I thank you humbly for the goodwill that you bear me. Oh, man. That's, like, (laughs) not the response that you want. (laughs) Oh. Because it's like, oh, my gosh. And then he says, I should indeed be a happy man since you have been so kind to show me how much you value our friendship. I'm like, this is so painful. And he was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not planning on staying in your kingdom very long. I promised your dad that I would serve him for like about a year. I might stay longer in his service because I don't want to leave him before this quarrels ended, but you know, things are going pretty well and I should probably return to my own land. And so I should probably just say goodnight to you right now. I don't know. Because then they said, like, the two lovers spoke together no further. Each was well assured of what the other's heart was. Was it, though? What? I mean, I guess, like, the one, on the one hand, I love you so much. If you don't marry me, I'm going to die (laughs) alone. And the other one being like, I really value your friendship. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it does seem like that is pretty clear. Yeah. Like, mm, I don't know. Well. His his response was less clear. I guess so. But she made her heart very well known. Yeah. But it said that like after that conversation with that they had with each other, for that night they parted ways, but then they were seeing each other like more often and were talking kindly with each other. It said often he had speech with her and great was the love that was growing between them. So I don't know. Maybe she was like, okay, he's not into it, but I'm still going to go for it. I don't know. But Aladuck kept pressing forward with the war. He was fighting so fiercely. It says that in the end, he took captive the king who had troubled his lord and delivered 
the land that that guy had, gave the land that that other guy had to the king of the land that he was defending. So he was like, well, I did it. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, this guy, Ayla Duck, he's such a crafty captain. Like he is, it's, it's a hearty comrade with the spear. The poor and the minstrels counted him a generous knight. And so about this time that everything was going really, really well, back at home, that king, he was so close to losing everything because this strong Mm -hmm. enemy had come up and was like fighting him and all of his knights that had stayed with him, the ones that have been bad talking, Aelidoc, were doing a terrible (laughs) job um, at defending him. And the king kind of realized like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I threw away my like greatest asset on rumors. What was I thinking? I'm so stupid. So he started writing letters to Aeliduct and sending the letters like out <laughs> for people to just go and find him. Yeah, just like because he didn't know where he went. That's so funny. He's just like writing 20 copies of the same yeah. letter and like sending writers out to be like, hey, find this guy and get this letter to him now. Because he knew that he had like got on a boat and then left, but he had no idea like which kingdom. But because Aeliduct was like so amazing where he was and was like having so much success, people were able to find him. It actually wasn't that hard to find him. They're like, Hey, I'm looking for this guy named Aeliduck. Like, Oh, Aeliduck. Yeah, we know him. He's doing really great things. The minstrels are going around like singing songs. (laughs) Toss a coin to you. (laughs) Aeliduck. Aeliduck. (laughs) So when he heard this, he knew like immediately he was going to have to leave, but he didn't want to because he was going to have to like go back home and be like and leave behind this woman and they had grown to like each other more and more like had more and more conversations with each other because the king had been like oh i really want you guys to get to know each other so they were constantly spending time um but it said never by word or deed had they spoiled their friendship to speak a little closely together to give some fond and foolish gift but that was the sum of their love was just this like mm. little. So yeah, when I said like, oh, they're not keeping it. in. Yeah. Balance. When I was like, they're not doing any hanky panky. Like they're talking with each other all night and it's not code for anything. Like they're just the most they're giving is just like a kiss. Goodbye. You know, like a courtesy, a courtesy kiss. That's what I call it. No, just kidding. Right. So it said in her wish and hope, the maiden trusted to hold the knight in her land and to have him as her lord. Not she deemed that he was wedded to a wife beyond the sea. So they hadn't talked mm. about that. So funny how that hasn't come up with all their late night chats. Yeah, little suspicious. So when he told her that he was going to have to leave, he was like, I have set my heart on this maiden, the daughter of the king, and she on me. If now we part, there is no help that one or both of us must die. So dramatic. So he basically said, like, I have to go. My Lord requires me by these letters and by the oaths that I have sworn, I must go back to my king. So... This next part is wild to me. He's like, okay, so I need to first go to the king and explain to him like what's going on with my, with this situation with this other king that he's going to, he's been Mm. cheating on his king with this other king. It's fine. (laughs) A lot of that going on (laughs) in all the relationships in his life. He's like, like first 
I need to go to the king and tell him that I have to go back to my rightful lord, my my other king that like kicked me out. And he's like, and then I will go to Gilladon and it says, show her the whole business, which sounds like a <laughs> euphemism. They've been separated for a long time. No, no, right. no, no, That's no. That's the first. The maid he's talking about is uh, the princess. Oh, I thought you were talking about his no, wife. No, no, no. No. Okay. <laughs> he's got to go to the princess and, quote, show her the whole business. Uh, <laughs> but no, that's not what he meant. What he meant was, in this next part, she will tell me her desires and I shall act according to her wish. Except, listen, he does not you? He does not go to her and show her the whole business. I'll tell you what. He does not uh, do that. Right. Not to mention, like, the fact that he's like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go to her and explain what's happening, and then I'll let her choose for and, herself. And leave it up but to I'm her. But I'm also going to withhold a bunch of information. Like, yeah, yeah. that sounds like just, like, it tried to absolve himself of, like, responsibility. Like, I'm going to let her make the decision where she's told him already, like, if you don't marry me, I'm going to die alone. Like, if I can't be with you, I will just die instead of, like, continuing existing. Like, you're going to think that this person is going to, under any circumstance, even if you told them, like, the whole story, be like, oh, you know what? Yeah, actually, you need to, like, not be with me because, you know what? It's not worth it to yeah, me. Yeah, she's like, oh, right, yeah, never mind. It's like, no, you know what she's going to do, dude. You know the choice Of course, that she's so then he be like, oh, I mean... She made this decision anyway. Oh, this guy. So he went to the king and explained like what was going on, the letters and everything. And he gave the letters to the king and the king read them. And he was like, okay, yeah, no, I, I understand. I'm, I'm so sad that you're having to leave. In fact, like if I could bribe you with anything, I will give you a third of my kingdom and all of the treasure that you want. If you will stay here, you don't have to go back to that guy. I can. Sort it out so that, like, you basically have, like, a kingdom all your own, if that's what you want. Ayla Duck was like, that is so nice of you to offer. Do not tempt me, sir, because, you know, my king, he is in peril, and I do feel duty-bound to him. I'm a knight. This is, like, my job. This is what I have to do. But if you would give me maybe some of your knights to come with me, on this, I can try to finish this up quickly and then come back to you if that's what you want. And the king was like, absolutely, yeah, you can take some of my knights with you if that's what you want for sure. And so the king loaded him up with not only that, he gave him like gold and silver, hounds and horses, silken cloth, rich and fair, that he can go out with all of this stuff, all of these gifts. It says, then very softly, Eliduck asked, one other gift. He said, if it pleased the king, would he be able to go to the princess to say farewell before he went? And the king was like, of course you can, because he's like shipping them together. Because the king also doesn't know about this. This man's married. So he went over to the princess and it said, sat himself by the maiden's side and explained to her like all that was going on. And like immediately her face lost its color and she like started to swoon. And Ayla Duck saw her about to fall. He caught her and he said he didn't know what to do for grief. And so he kissed her mouth once and again and wept above her very tenderly. He took her and held her fast in his arms till she had returned from her swoon. I'm like, oh, my gosh. She's like, oh, she she fainted. I didn't know what to do, but to like, you know, kiss her all over. 
Sure, buddy. Anyway, oof. He was like, like, I have to leave, but I I don't want to leave you. I care about you. What would you have me do? And she was like, I understand that you can't stay, but could you take me with you? Wherever you go, I want to go with you. My life is so joyless without you that I would wish to end it with my knife. Oh, gosh. Come on. You cannot say that to people. And he was like, okay, no, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go with these other nights that your father has given me. I'm going to go and I'm going to sort out this situation. But if you tell me when you want me to come back, like if you want me to come back, I will come back. I will come back for you. And she asked him to come back in eight days. That's the only number it gives, except that by the time he gets back to his kingdom, he also says eight days. And then, so I I really don't know what the time frame actually was because there's some travel time in there and he has to do some fighting. So I don't know, but he was like, I, after this space of time, I will come back for you. I promise. And they exchanged golden rings with each other in remembrance and sweetly kissed adieu. So Ayla Duck gets on the water. He's on the sea, sailing across the sea, gets back to his homeland And his friends and his kinfolk came to greet him. And, you know, all the other people who had remembered him were so excited to see him. And among all of them, none was so happy at his homecoming as his fair and prudent wife. Oh. Uh, But despite, like, her show of affection towards him and how happy she was to see him, he was, like, all sad and morose his wife could tell that like something was going on. And so when they got back to the house, she was like, okay, you're acting really cold towards me. Did I do something? Did, did I offend you in some way? Did you hear like a rumor about me from somebody saying that like, I wasn't faithful to you because I absolutely was faithful. If you tell me what you're upset about, like I'll fix it, I'll sort it out, like what's going on. And he was like, oh no, which I'm like, I I feel so frustrated reading that because like this poor woman, Mm -hmm. she's like trying to understand like why her husband came back and is being so weird. And she's like, is it something I did? Like what's wrong? I'm like, that's so unfair to her. Yeah. So he basically was like, oh, no, it's not that I'm I'm I feel really bad. I pledged my faith to this king of this like other country. So I'm going to have to like go back to him because now I'm technically his knight. But I told him about the trouble here. So I came back. But then I'm going to have to go again. And so, you know, it's just a lot that like I'm, I'm just I'm suffering a lot right now. Great troubles I must endure and many pains I shall suffer in readiness for this hour. Like, like to do this, I'm, I'm, it's really hard for me. But it, what he's not saying is like, the reason it's hard for me is because I'm actually in love with somebody else and I don't want to be away from yeah. her. And so his wife's like, oh, yeah, no, I totally understand. No problem. So once again, Ayla Duck leaves the land and stuff with his wife. And he went to go talk to his king and be like, hey, I'm here. I came and the king was like, I'm so happy you're back. Everything has been horrible. It's been terrible. Please, what can you do to help me? So Ayla Duck was like, hey, I actually brought some of these knights from this other kingdom. And so we're here to help you. And so within eight days, they were able to not only like push back all of these king's forces, 
that had mm. been about to steal. There's all kinds of kings. So it's like one king, two king, all the kings. But anyway, Aeliduck was able to help push off this enemy and then kind of broker negotiations between like the two groups about what they were going to do with land, where the boundaries were going to be. So he very quickly was able to kind of like sort these things out. So then after all that was sorted out, Aeliduck was like, okay, so I need to sail back over there. And for some reason he decided that he was going to take, well, I know what the reason is. It was because he wasn't planning on staying over there. So he took two of his nephews and one of his chamberlains from like his house and some like advisors of his. He basically had gathered up a bunch of like friends of his mm-hmm. to go back over. When they got on the boat, Aeliduct was like, okay, I need you guys to promise and make an oath to me that you're not going to reveal anything that we're about to do. <laughs> oh, Great. So all of them were like, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess we can like keep a secret or whatever. And he was like, "Okay, great. So when the ship landed, they got lodging right outside of like the city. And Aeliduck to his chamberlain was like, "Okay, I need you to ride over the princess's house and tell her that I'm hiding here and that she needs to like come out to us. And they were like, "Okay, why are we whispering? He goes over, so the Chamberlain goes over, not our favorite Chamberlain, this is Aeliduck's Chamberlain. A different Chamberlain. Uh. So he goes over to uh, the princess's chambers and like knocks on the door and is like, hey, so I have a message for you. Your lover is nearby and he wants to take you away. And she was like, oh my gosh, he did, he came back for me, it's happening, it's finally happening for me, you guys. (laughs) So she gets dressed and gets ready, grabs some of her stuff, and she sneaks out. The day was spent in preparing for the adventure, according to such plan as had been devised. So when night came, she snuck out of the palace and went down to the lodging that was by the sea. And it said, for fear that any man should know her again, the maiden had hidden beneath a riding cloak, her silken gown embroidered with gold. So it's like, she's, (laughs) I love that she's like, somebody might see my beautiful dress. I better put on this cloak that's embroidered with gold. (laughs) Just kidding. I think the gown was embroidered with gold and the cloak was plain. I don't know. It's fine. But anyway, she's like, I got to put on these like beautiful things. And we like to, we like to note colors, right? For things. So embroidered with gold. Mm-hmm. And I like, it says about the space of a bow shot from the city gate. See here in America, we measure things by football fields, but I guess back in the middle ages, back in medieval times, they measured things by how far you could shoot a bow <laughs> about the space of a bow shot from the city gate. <laughs> There was this space in a meadow with like some trees where it was like a nice little hiding spot. And that's where Aeliduck and his comrades were waiting for the princess. So when Aeliduck saw her wrapped in her mantle, his chamberlain leading her by the hand, he got from his horse and kissed her right tenderly. (laughs) But it said great joy had his companions at so fair a sight. And I'm like... Dude, your nephews are watching you kissing a woman that's not your wife, and they're like, yeah, get it. Ugh, who are th- who are these bros? Anyway, so he put her on his horse. He climbed on, and they took off to where they could get onto a boat. So they got onto the ship, immediately set out, and they were making pretty good time 
as they were going, but then suddenly a tempest arose on the sea. And if you have ever read a Bible, no, any, <laughs> anytime somebody's doing something that they're not supposed to be doing on a boat, there usually is like this kind of wrath of God moment situation that goes on. And so that's kind of what happens is like the, the sea, there's a big tempest. The wind is blowing. They're getting tossed everywhere and their rudder was broken and the sail was torn from the mast. And so all of them were like praying to like all these different saints, like, oh my gosh, what should we do? Like, please save us. And then it says somebody who is in the company, it didn't say if it was one of his nephews or not, which is kind of, I don't know, I thought that would have been important. But somebody who was in the group was like, what are we doing praying? Sir, you have with you her who brings us to our death. We shall never win to land because you, who already have a faithful wife, seek to wed this foreign woman against God and his law, against honor <laughs> and your plighted troth. Grant us to cast her in the sea and straightway the winds and the waves shall be still. Okay, so quick thing in this person's insane outburst. <laughs> Normally, if a story contains the element of the sea tossing and turning because God is mad. Mm-hmm. The person who's supposed to get thrown overboard is the person offending God. Yeah. And if people on the boat don't know who's doing something bad, who's offending God, then they draw lots, right? Yeah. They try to do some game of chance to figure out, okay, which one of us is it? And then they throw that person over. If anybody should get thrown off of the boat, it should be Aladuck, right? Right. <laughs> why, why would they be like, oh, we need to throw this woman overboard? That is insane. Okay. And so also... Second point, as he was shouting this out in front of everybody, he said, you already have a faithful wife and you seek to wed this foreign woman. And this was the first that the princess had uh... heard of this. So immediately when Aladuck heard the words that that guy said, he was like, you are a traitor, which I'm like, uh, mm, mm, hmm, listen. Uh, he was like, you shall pay dearly for your speech. when." The princess heard that Aladuck was already married. She swooned hard. And listen, she swooned several times in the story, like almost swooned. She's very prone to swooning. Uh -huh. But her face immediately like became pale and discolored. She like fainted into Aladuck's arms and he like grabbed her trying to like stop her like from falling over. And he was worried that he had like squeezed her too tight when he caught her and like stopped her breathing. Because she stopped breathing, nobody could wake her up or rouse her. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly like picked her up and carried her to a sheltered place where, you know, she was out of the storm. But Aladuct was like, oh my gosh, my woman just fainted or died or something. Like, <laughs> this is like horrible. And so he decided what he was going to do was pick up an oar and slap the guy who who had shouted that out, uh -huh. he hit him upside the head with that oar and knocked him unconscious. And then he grabbed him by the legs and flung him over the boat into the sea. And this man was swiftly swallowed by the waves. So then Aladuct, it says he went over to the broken rudder, but he was able to govern the ship safely and skillfully back into the harbor. And I'm like, what? I guess it wasn't God that was mad because it was 
God was like, oh, I'm glad they figured out who needed to be slapped in the face with an oar. No, they completely hit the wrong person. Anyway, so when they got out of the boat, Ayla Duct was like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? She died. She had no reason to die. And she still looks so beautiful with her cheeks still a seemingly like rosy red and her skin so white and fair and beautiful. We have to take her into the forest where I know there is a hermit who lives in a little chapel that's out here. I, I'll take her to him and I will see if later I'm able to build a monastery in her honor. So they set out to this forest and they went into this forest like with her body and when they got to this little chapel to find this holy hermit <laughs> we use that as a new like exclamation of shock holy hermit holy hermit i was thinking hags and crags and holy hermits <laughs> ooh the what a great like mashup that would be hags and crags and holy hermits so He knocked on the door. Nobody answered at the chapel. And he was like, oh, what's going on? Like, where is he? And they went inside and they saw that in like the center of this small chapel was a brand new tomb. And written on the top of it was the name of the hermit who had died eight days before. And so... I want you guys to picture in your mind, you're inside of this like little house, but it's like a a chapel, but still it's small Mm -hmm. and it's deep in the forest. So it's not like people are coming here regularly all the time. That's why a hermit was living there. Like, you know, a holy hermit. So he's like a solitary monk or whatever. Uh And in the middle of the front is like basically a coffin, a tomb, but it's a an encasement it's like stone okay and the hermit is inside of that so what ayla duck decides to do is to lay uh lay the princess on top of that because he decided that what he is going to do is he's not going to bury her here what he's going to do is he's going to go and talk to the king about a possible location where they can build a monastery in her honor Mm-hmm. and then bury her there at the monastery that's built for her honor. And so for now, he's just going to lay her on top of this and leave. So he goes back home. You know, his wife is so happy that he is back, but he seems, you know, really sad and upset. And she's kind of like, oh, man, like, what's going on with him? And all the people who had been on the journey with him, minus that one guy who got thrown into the sea, <laughs> They were like, oh, yeah, I mean, it was just like a really hard journey. It was just like really difficult. And but now I think he's going to come and be like a knight here. But he sorted everything out. It's just been a lot. He's just been through a lot. And his wife was like, "Okay, like, I guess. But he was just really quiet and withdrawn. And she really didn't know, like, what was going on with him. Mm -hmm. So she was noticing that every day he kept saying like, oh, yeah, I need to go and meet with the king. But then he would disappear for like a really, really long time. It just seemed like suspicious to her. Yeah. So she told one of her like servants to follow close behind. And she was like, if you spy on my husband, I'll give you like your own horse, which I love. <laughs> that is just like, hey, that's what the going rate for a private eye was back in the Middle Ages. So this guy 
follows behind. He follows him, and Aleduct is just going into this forest, going into the chapel, staying into the chapel for a while, and then coming out, like, crying and full of tears. And so the guy was like, um, that's weird. That's suspicious. So he goes back to Aleduct's wife and is like, yeah, okay, so he went out here and was, like, crying. I don't know what's going on. And she's like, that's so weird. I mean, I know that he used to go there a lot, and he liked the hermit, and I know he, like, he missed the hermit dying, but is that really what's making him cry so much that, like, every day he's, like, going there to cry? (laughs) That's... Like, that's so weird. But I mean, I don't know. So, huh. So she decides that the next day she's going to go out to that same place and see what's there. So she gets out to this old chapel in the middle of the woods and she walks inside and she sees this beautiful woman laying on the top of (laughs) the tomb of this like Uh hermit. And she was like, this lady in her life was the lover of my Lord. It was for her that all his days were spoiled by grief. By my faith, I marvel little at his sorrow, since I, who am a woman too, will, for pity's sake or love, never know joy again, having seen so fair a lady in the dust. Oh my gosh. That is some closeted (laughs) bisexual and lesbian stuff. I'll tell you what. Her reaction is she goes out. She's like, oh, you know what? I get it. (laughs) She's like, dang, I will never be happy because I never get to (laughs) be in love with this woman. Uh (laughs) I will never know joy again, having seen so fair a lady in the dust. And so his wife like laid down on the body of this maiden and she starts like crying and weeping because she's like so sad that so young and beautiful of a woman is gone from the earth, Mm -hmm. which again, I'm like, ma'am, listen, I can't tell you what your sexuality is, but maybe you should have questioned it a little bit before this moment right now. But anyway, no worries. So as she is sitting there sobbing and crying, something a little weird happens. A weasel came out from under the altar and like ran across <laughs> the body the of Gilladarn, the princess. And immediately the man who had gone out with Aeliduk's wife, like smacked the weasel. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Pop goes the weasel. <laughs> ah, that's what my brain did. Anyway. Um, So he whacked it with a staff and killed it like immediately. And he said he took the vermin and flung it away. So then a lady weasel came out and she ran towards her mate. And she saw that he was dead and was trying to like nudge him awake and he wasn't waking. So she ran out into the woods and then she came back with a bright red flower between her teeth. And this red flower she placed within the mouth of that weasel. And immediately he stood up upon his feet. Are you remembering anything Mm -hmm. right now, Jeff? (laughs) Remembering three snake leaves? Yes, absolutely. So when the, when Aeliduck's wife saw this happen, she quickly was like, (gasps) to the man that was with her, quick, 
grab that flower. And so he, you know, ran and chased the weasels away and they had left, you know, this bright red flower on the floor and the lady lifted it up and she took the flower and she put it onto the mouth of Gilladar and the princess. And it said for a short space, the dame and the damsel were alike breathless. Which I love that, that like that moment yeah. of like that anticipation where it's like for a moment they're both breathless. And then the princess like opened her eyes and sat up and she was like, oh, have I slept so long indeed? <laughs> Which, yeah, it's like when the realm. And like immediately uh, Aeloduck's wife was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you're alive. I thought you were dead. Oh my gosh, like this is horrible. The princess was like, something terrible has happened to me. I was in love with this knight named Aeloduct and he was a knight for my father and we fled together from my home and it's all my fault, but he never told me that he was wedded to a wife from his own country and he hid the matter so cunningly that I knew not thereof. When I heard tell of his wife, I swooned for pure sorrow now I find that this false lover has, like a felon, betrayed me in a strange land. <laughs> what will chance to a maiden in so foul a plight? Great is that woman's folly who puts her trust in man. I'm like, yes, girl, keep that energy. But no, she does not keep that energy. Immediately, Aeloduck's wife is like, no, no, no. There's nothing in this whole world that would give such joy to this felon as to hear that you are yet alive. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, I love that she said that. Such joy to this felon. He thought that you were dead, but every day he was coming to this chapel and crying over you. I'm his wife, but my heart is sick just from looking at how sad he has been. To learn the reason of his grief... I followed him, and that's how I found you here. I'm so glad to know that you're alive. You should return with me to my home, and I will place you in the tenderness of your lover. Then I shall release him from his marriage, since it is my dearest hope to take the veil as a nun. What the heck? Yeah, I'm so sure. No, I seriously am like, what? <clears throat> what? So after the wife comforted <laughs> the mistress um she took her back to their house and imagine aleduck's surprise when he got off of his horse that day yeah and he found this woman alive and with his wife so uh, the princess explained everything that had happened and aleduck thanked his wife for so dear a gift <laughs> oh gross uh so aleduck had a nunnery a chapel and monastery built in honor instead of his wife, where she went and became the the abbess of this monastery. And she had, you know, other nuns in her abbey that lived under her. And Aleduct got married to his new wife. And then the story ends with, it says, Aleduct wedded with his friend. No, <laughs> it does say friend. Aleduct wedded. In great pomp and passing rich was the marriage feast. They dwelt in unity together for many days. Forever between them was perfect love. And they walked uprightly in all things before God. And as they got older, Aleduct, he, it, I'm unclear of how this like works, 
so I'm sorry, but it sounds like what he decided to do was like, as he got older and enfeebled, he went to live at like another monastery. Like he became like a monk, devoted the rest of his life to God. And then the princess joined his first wife in the abbey that she was running. And then they devoted the rest of their aging days to God. Each strove painfully for himself and his to love God the more dearly and to abide in his holy faith. Each made a good end and the mercy of God was abundantly made clear to all. I'm like, was it? Yeah, that like that very, very end. I mean, so much of the (laughs) ending. The first ending is weird. That last ending is like so strange to me. Yeah, because it is very much... It doesn't sit right because it's about this like whole dynamic about like courtly love. Yeah. It's not a happy ending to end up with the wife that you're duty bound to be with. A mm-hmm. happy ending is to be married to the person that you're romantically in love with. Yeah. And they're like, oh, so how do we rectify this? Like, what's the way to fix this where where everything ends as it should be, but this man's not a villain for cheating on his wife? Yeah. Oh, I know. We'll have the duty-bound wife be like, oh, it's fine. In fact, I would love to see you guys together. I've always wanted to become a nun anyway. But listen, <laughs> headcanon. I think his wife also, you know, she married out of duty. Yeah. When she was really in love with women. Mm-hmm. And so her best case scenario is to go and live in uh, an abbey full of women. Yeah. I want the best for her. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, she's like, oh, you know what? I'm happy to get out of this marriage because I also deserve to go and find love. And I'm going to find it in this nunnery. That's my headcanon. To make it okay. Because really, like, in our minds and our sensibility, that's not a happy ending. Right. At all. Yeah. I mean, I understand why for Aleduct it is, because uh-huh. he got to oh. be with the woman that yeah. he wanted to be. But because I don't understand courtly love, like, I don't get why, why, I mean, I guess I do. I guess I do understand why, why women who are listening to this story in this time period mm-hmm. listen to the story and they're like, wow, that's the dream, right? That a man would leave his wife that he's like duty bound to be with Mm -hmm. to marry somebody that he's deeply, passionately in love with. Because they're all in relationships with people that they're duty bound to be with. Yeah. And there are spaces in history and like different groups of royalty and stuff that have felt cool with just taking lovers. Yeah. That, you know, there's the person that you politically need to be with, but then there's the people that you actually love and want to hook up with and care mm-hmm. about. And those are two separate things. And everybody, it's like an unspoken truth. And so this story is very much that. Yeah. But some of the elements to talk about really quickly. So when that weasel got that flower, right? <laughs> Wild. I mean. Okay. Because, like- yeah, we we talked about the story Three Snake Leaves. And normally in the stories, it is a snake. Or normally in stories, it is usually a snake. So it's interesting that they chose a weasel. They're the snakes of the mammal. I want to say kingdom, but I know it's like kingdom is like animalia. I don't know what like sub yeah. breakdown scientifically mammalia falls under. But, you know, weasels are the snakes of the mammals. What I'm trying to say. In the book of Six Medieval Women, uh, when they briefly kind of talk about this story, one of the suggestions 
for why it was weasels instead of snakes Mm -hmm. is because Marie herself might have seen these weasels more so than she would snakes as having this like moment of despair that they're you know, love has been killed and died and then brings them back to life. Like that, that brief, like tender moment, maybe it was just like more relatable that was weasels. Other ideas have been that sometimes weasels were actually kept by people to hunt snakes. Uh And so they were like, oh, you know what? Let's, I'd rather it be like a weasel and weasels hunt snakes. I don't know. But it was noted that it was weird that it wasn't a snake. But apparently, and I did not know this um, until I was researching this story. Also in this book of six medieval women, it talks about this motif of the restoration to life by means of a flower or herb. And one of the earliest versions of this story goes back to the son of Minos, the king of Crete. I think his name is Glaucos. Glaucos, maybe? Okay. So the story goes that Glaucos, when he was a boy, he fell into a cask of honey, like head first, Mm -hmm. and smothered to death and died. Sad. Yes. It's fine. Because the motif is Is the restoration of life by means of a flower or an herb. (laughs) Still sad. Yes, you're right. It is. And... Minus when he found his son, you know, was beside himself with grief, just couldn't believe what a terrible thing had happened. And so he consulted with his oracle what to do, how this happened, how to bring him back to life. And the oracle really didn't have any anything to, you know, solve that problem. Like when you're dead, you're dead. And Minus was not happy with that. So he took the oracle and he locked him up in a tomb with the body of his son. And, you know, the Oracle was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what's happening. Suddenly a serpent kind of came out of nowhere and like slid up over the body. And the Oracle immediately, you know, just killed the snake because nobody wants to be locked in a room with a snake and a dead body. The two, my two least favorite things to be locked in a room. (laughs) So immediately after he had killed the snake, a second one came out. Seeing that his friend was dead, disappeared, came back with an herb in its mouth. It laid the herb on the mouth of the dead serpent, came back to life. The oracle grabbed the herb, placed it on the sun, the son's body on his mouth, and he was restored to life. So this story from ancient Greece, these motifs obviously, you know, traveled up and mm-hmm. were influencing storytelling like a thousand years after they were in that story. Up till Marie de France, whether she had heard that story before or not, she probably had. She seems like she's read a lot of books. And back then, you know, you could read all the books that existed in your life or mm. even rewrite them in a different language <laughs> and then be like, oh, all the other books have been written anyway. <laughs> so she probably had read it. But even if she hadn't, like it existed in the ocean of stories. These stories travel everywhere and bits and pieces of them end up in stories. All of them are communicating with each other. Like if anybody, if anybody isn't convinced of this yet, I don't know how to help you. Because uh, <laughs> like that's all we do. Like on the podcast is talk about this. And so it's like just an example of even though this particular motif of like an herb bringing somebody like back to life isn't in 
all of the stories. It is there and it does show this like clear connection back to Greece and these stories in Greece being in that ocean of stories and ending up in European tales and motifs mixing together. But one of the most obvious similarities between the two stories of what we're doing with Snow White Mm -hmm. is right at the end. Um, I do think it's so interesting that because the colors in all of the stories aren't as important, but I did think it was interesting that they talked about how like red her cheeks were and how like white her skin was even after she had died just because of obviously the, what we know about snow white today, the most famous story with the red, white and black elements. And we're going to be talking more about those colors as we cover other stories So there was that. And then obviously that carrying her to like the middle of the woods. Yeah. A cabin in the woods in a death like sleep. I mean, the old hermit, we didn't get to see him while he was alive. But there's kind of that element of that like helper in the woods Mm -hmm. because it's not always, you know, like dwarves or elves. Sometimes it's robbers like there's a there's like it's weird who is in the woods to help and this guy he didn't help in the woods but he was a friend even if he was dead and there was this little like secluded house in the middle of the woods and then this tomb lifeless body beautiful woman brought back to life so it's an important part in the journey that the story of snow white takes and it'll be a lot clearer when we do an episode next month. We're going to get a lot closer to the Snow White story that we know today uh, when we do Gold Tree and Silver Tree. But it's going to become very obvious why we had to uh, stop off at this story first. Even if this story like wasn't relevant to Snow White... It is an amazing tale that I'm sure most people have not heard. And Marie de France is definitely a collection that deserves a little bit of attention. Oh, yeah. If you are going to be covering even the King Arthur stories and other contemporary stories that branch out from these and this point in time. Yeah, and just a cool person to learn about. The fact that she existed. Like, I want to learn more about her and her life. Yeah. Well, the fact that we don't even know her last name makes me think we're not <laughs> going to learn much about her life beyond the stories that she left behind. But... But still incredible to at least acknowledge, you know, that she existed, that she made a difference, and that she was a person who sat down and was like, do you know what I think is important? Folk tales. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar
like he's tied for most nominated. She has more wins than he does, but it's pretty nuts. You have pretty nuts. <laughs> I regretted it the minute I said it. <laughs>